Coverage. I'm London Lopate. Political scientist Larry Bartels opens his latest book by noting that there's, quote, a palpable sense of crisis in Western democracy and that it provides a compelling hook for much political writing. But he claims the reality is much less, much less frightening. His book, Democracy Erodes from the Top, Leaders, Citizens, and the Challenge of Populism in Europe is published by Princeton University Press and brings Larry M. Bartels, who holds the May Wortham Shane Chair of Public Policy and Social Science at Vanderbilt University, to our show now. Welcome. Yes. Now, you're, you're known for your expertise in analyzing U.S. electoral politics, but, is, but Europe is the focus of this book. Yes. In light of recent events in the United States, the post-election turmoil, the current political polarization that seems to be getting worse. Could you say we're going through something of a crisis in this country? Yes. I think the important thing to bear in mind is that democracies are always in crisis of one kind or other, or at least very frequently. Um, but the real point of my book, and I think it's an important perspective on what's happened in the U.S. as well, is that the crises are largely the product of mismanagement uh, or exploitation of opportunities, vulnerabilities of democratic systems by political leaders rather than uh, primarily an upwelling of support for authoritarianism or anti-democratic systems from ordinary citizens. So in the U.S., for example, there's been a lot of focus on the mob that stormed the Capitol on January 6th, but I think the much more dangerous figures in the crisis of contemporary U.S. democracy are Donald Trump and the Republicans in Congress who supported or uh, at least were willing to uh, go along with his efforts to steal the election. Like Marjorie Taylor Greene and such. Well, there are a whole lot of them. Most mm -hmm. of the Republicans in the House voted to decertify electoral votes on January 6th. I think mm -hmm. that was a clear violation of democratic norms and uh, something that they essentially got away with. Virtually all of them are still there, and it's unclear under what circumstances they might be willing to engage in additional undemocratic action. But I think the idea that um, citizens are either the base of this or, on the other hand, uh, the safeguard that's going to prevent it by holding these leaders to account uh, doesn't seem to work very well. So in 2022, there's no evidence at all that citizens punished the political leaders who were involved in this kind of action in the U.S. Isn't one of the big differences that most European countries have multi-party parliamentary systems, which differ quite a bit from our two-party presidential system? In our two-party presidential system, um, the Democrats can have a wide range of uh, opinions from left to, to center and the Republicans from center to right. Whereas in European countries, there would be a, a center party and then a right-wing party and a, and a left-wing party. Well, I think the vulnerabilities to democratic erosion are different with different kinds of political institutions. So uh, in majoritarian systems like the U.S. or the U.K., it's unlikely that a right-wing populist figure is going to um, take over one of the mainstream parties. But when they do, as Donald Trump has, then they can be incredibly dangerous. In multi-party systems, it's easier for right-wing factions to win significant representation in the parliament, as they have in many parts of Western Europe, but then it's harder for them to actually influence policy or to consolidate anti-democratic moves because they have to work in coalition with mainstream parties in most cases. You begin your book by saying, quote, there is a palpable sense of crisis in Western democracies. And then you cite a number of examples, but you go on to write that, quote, the conventional wisdom about a crisis of democracy in contemporary Europe is strikingly at odds with what we learned from public opinion surveys. 
Right. So what I did was to look at survey data from all over Europe, 23 countries in Europe, over the period from 2002 to 2019. Um, there are about 350,000 individual survey respondents represented here from a big cross-national study called the European Social Survey. Um, and what I did was to track the kinds of attitudes that are rightly associated with support for right-wing populist parties. So things like anti-immigrant sentiment and opposition to the European Union and distrust of political leaders. Um, all of those things are essentially stable over this entire period uh, from 2002 to 2019. I had expected, based on a lot of journalistic accounts, to see significant shifts in public opinion um, that would explain the electoral rise of right-wing populist parties. But in fact, there's really no change in any of those key indicators. And so then the question is, why are these right-wing populist parties gaining at the polls? I think the first thing to say about that is that mostly they're not. The populist wave that so many people have written about is vastly exaggerated. Um, but secondly, insofar as there has been an increase in support for these parties, uh, by my tabulation, uh, their average support has gone from something like 12 or 13 percent to something like 15 percent. Um, that modest increase seems mostly to have to do with the increasing ability of right wing populist entrepreneurs to mobilize support. Um, the mistakes or errors of mainstream incumbent parties and a good deal of uh, kind of overemphasis on the popularity of right wing populist parties in the press in places like Britain, for example, UKIP was never really a major electoral force, but got much more popular attention, press attention uh, than it deserved based on support. And so had an influence on the conservative party in ways that I think were hugely detrimental. Like Brexit. Yes, obviously. Yeah. But uh, did the general election in Italy last year give the center-right coalition led by Georgia Maloney's brothers uh, of Italy an absolute majority in the Italian parliament? That's, that's a radical right party with neo-fascist roots. Uh, right. But the key word here is coalition. And in order to actually accomplish anything, she has to garner support in the parliament from much more mainstream right wing parties. Um, so far, she hasn't done very much of that. Most of the commentary on her time in office has commented on how surprised people are by the relative mildness of the policies that she's adopted. I think part of that has to do with the constraints that she faces within the parliament. Part of it has to do with the fact that Italy is heavily dependent on the European Union and EU funds. Uh, and so to actually follow through on the anti-EU rhetoric that she campaigned on, I think, would be pretty damaging for her and for the country. Well, how much of her success is related to her country's history? After all, Mussolini was the father of fascism. Well, there is a somewhat higher level of right-wing populist sentiment in Italy than there is in most other parts of Europe. But even at that, it's not a majority of the electorate. Uh, and the more important point here is that the rise and fall of these right-wing parties often has very little to do with shifts in underlying right-wing sentiment in the population. So um, there was a Another right-wing populist party that surged to power and then declined. And as it declined, Maloney's power, party um, gained support. Uh, but it wasn't gaining support because more people suddenly wanted what she was selling. It was a matter of shifting their support from other more or less similar parties. And if you look at other parts of Europe where right-wing populist parties have surged, um, there's often been no increase and sometimes even a decline in underlying right-wing populist sentiment 
in the public. So the, the ups and downs have much more to do with what I call the supply side, the behavior of political elites, than with what I call the demand side, the underlying public support for these parties. Where was Silvio Berlusconi in? Uh, <laughs> was, was he left, right, something in the center? Well, he was I mean, himself about his a right-wing problems. populist. He was himself a right-wing populist in an earlier era, uh, I think less extreme, certainly, than uh, Maloney. Um, he was still quite involved and influential in what has now become a more mainstream right-wing populist party that has joined in her coalition, uh, but I think is... Uh, unlikely to give her everything she wants in the way of policy. This is a kind of common pattern with right-wing populist parties when they actually do manage to get into power. They have trouble figuring out what to do because the rhetoric that they campaigned on often isn't very uh, viable as a governing strategy. Well, as I mentioned, a recent election in Italy indicated that many people are leaning toward right-wing populism. And what about the governments of Poland and Hungary, which have moved far to the right? Those are the most significant examples of actual democratic backsliding that we've seen anywhere in Europe in this era. And so I spend some time looking at those two cases in detail, um, and they turn out not to fit the standard story at all well. If you look at survey data from, for example, just before the 2010 election in which Orban's Fidesz power, party took power in Hungary, the people who were supporting that party didn't look at all like right-wing populist sympathizers in other parts of Europe. They were essentially mainstream conservatives who were disillusioned with an incumbent government that had been hugely ineffective and involved for years in a huge scandal. Uh, and so they were likely to vote for any plausible alternative. And Fidesz was the most obvious alternative at that point. So they voted Orban into power. He got 53% of the popular vote but given the way the electoral system in Hungary worked, that translated into a two-thirds majority in the National Assembly, which was just enough given intense party loyalty among the members of the National Assembly uh, from Fidesz, just enough to alter the Constitution and crack down on judges and journalists and so on. So this was after the fact justified as a voting booth revolution, but really ordinary citizens had very little to do with it. They voted Fidesz into power, uh, and then Orban seized the opportunity to entrench himself in power. And the story in Poland is really very much the same. In fact, uh, the leaders in Poland pointed to Orban as an example that they were following. And so they got into power and began to entrench themselves in power. But the Real movement came after the election, and the support for the party in the election really seemed to have very little to do with right-wing populism or any kind of um, taste for authoritarianism on the part of ordinary citizens. And Orban became something of a hero for some Americans on Fox TV, Tucker Carlson. Yep. Uh, there have been connections uh, between leaders and campaign consultants and intellectuals uh, across Europe and the U.S. and indeed elsewhere in the world among these various right-wing movements. And so I think part of what we've seen is simply a kind of copying phenomenon uh, where rhetoric or strategies that turn out to work in one place then get tried in other places as well. My guest on today's London Low Pit at Large is Larry M. Bartels. His latest book, Democracy Erodes from the Top, Leaders, Citizens, and the Challenge of Populism in Europe, published by Princeton University Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. 
You say that your understanding of how most people think about what's happened in Europe over the last couple of decades is that there's been a big shift in opinion, especially in the wake of the euro crisis, with uh, voters becoming increasingly alienated from their incumbent governments and from the European Union as an institution. So the right-wing populist challenges are the alternative? Well, uh, for some people, they are. But I think the important point here is that this reservoir of potential right-wing populist sentiment has been out there all along. It really hasn't increased uh, significantly across Europe over the last couple of decades. So if there's a crisis of public opinion, it's a crisis of very long standing. Um, there's a graph in the book that compares the actual support for right-wing populist parties with the underlying distribution of right-wing sentiment across Europe. And the striking thing about it is that there are a lot of people who have um, right-wing populist attitudes of various sorts who aren't supporting right-wing populist parties. So the good news is that mainstream politicians have mostly been pretty good at keeping these people in the fold. The bad news is that there's still a lot more potential out there if right-wing populist entrepreneurs can succeed more than they have in mobilizing all of their potential support. But that's really a very hard thing to do because there are, in all of these systems, more mainstream conservative parties that also have a lot of ways to appeal to these people. Well, don't you really answer this question about how many people in Europe are really dissatisfied with their own democratic systems? With the title of your book, Democracy Erodes from the Top, you're saying this is not a populist movement? Well, it is a populist movement, but it's a top-down movement rather than a bottom-up movement. Well, isn't it if usually simply, the case? Isn't that usually the case? Um, I think it is. I mean, we don't know as much about previous examples. FDR but changed American politics totally. That was top-down. I agree. Yes, I think the U.S. very much fits into this story. Um, again, institutional details matter, and the most important institutional detail in the U.S. is that we have a primary system that is supposed to be democratic, let the voters choose the presidential candidates. Uh, but the downside of it is that it makes it possible for a candidate with narrow but intense factional support, like Donald Trump in 2016, uh, to win the nomination by basically appealing to this strong minority when the set of mainstream candidates who might win majority support against them, even within the Republican primary, um, can't coordinate among themselves. And so they divide the anti-Trump vote. And I think there's a danger that that'll happen again in 2024. We've seen um, several additional candidates jump into the race and the probability that we'll get down to a Trump versus anyone race quickly enough to keep him from winning the nomination, I think is pretty dicey. Uh, but once he won the nomination in 2016, uh, basically it was Republican Party loyalty that won the general election. Uh, he won about 90% of the support of Republicans in the general election, just as more conventional Republican candidates in recent elections have. Are you at all surprised when you see the news reports on TV where his supporters are true believers? They just will not believe anything negative about Donald Trump? Well, there's a significant number of people for whom that's the case. Um, politics is often about social identities and loyalty to political leaders who can validate one's social identities. And one of the most important politically intense social identities in the U.S. right now, I think, is the feeling of being left behind or being on the losing side of history among a large number of mostly traditional white uh, voters who feel like the country has moved away from 
what it was. And that's an intense value that those people are very eager to act on. And once Trump convinced them that he felt their pain and was going to be the person to symbolize that discontent, uh, that developed a very strong bond of loyalty. Uh, similarly, in Hungary, for example, uh, one of Orban's key bases of support is the striving for national identity and a kind of renewal of traditional Hungarian identity in a world where they've been buffeted by, you know, the occupation by the Soviets and then the turn to freedom and democracy and then various economic and social crises. So it's a matter of confusion? Well, uh, you can say people are confused. I would say they just have very strong values that they're turning to the political system to validate. Um, I think one of the things that people lose track of in thinking about democratic erosion or democratic backsliding is that very few of us probably are going to prioritize democratic norms or democratic procedures over every other political and social value that we hold dear. At some point, we're likely to trade off democracy and our understanding of proper democratic functioning against um, wanting to support somebody who we think will be good for us, for our values, for our identities, for the quality of our day-to-day -day lives. I was surprised to find in looking at both Poland and Hungary that in the years after these right-wing populist parties took power, there was a huge improvement in ordinary citizens' sense of how the economy was doing, how the government was doing, their level of trust in politicians, even their satisfaction with democracy increased substantially at the same time that outside observers were charting this substantial democratic backsliding. So I think partly that reflects the fact that ordinary people have very flexible and often vague definitions in mind of what democracy means, but also that in a situation where they feel like the incumbent government is performing well and improving the quality of their day-to-day -day lives, they're unlikely to put a lot of stock in the niceties of democratic procedures. Is Hungary doing well? Well, they've been doing less well lately, as a lot of countries the Ukraine had. has had a major impact, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, so that's happened in the last couple of years since my book was finished. Hmm. Um, but I think all of these incumbent, excuse me, entrenched incumbent parties are constantly vulnerable to losing support when things go badly. It's just that they're doing their best to build the kind of safeguards that will keep them in office longer than they otherwise would be able to. And that's something that's pretty common among all kinds of democratic leaders. I refer toward the very end of my book to an analysis of city politics in late 19th and early 20th century U.S. Um, that looks at lots of the urban machines uh, that controlled major cities for long periods of time that were often quite corrupt and established all kinds of um, shady safeguards to keep themselves in power. Eventually, they got voted out and replaced by uh, alternatives who build themselves as reformers. And in many cases, the reformers then turn to entrenching themselves in power using somewhat different mechanisms. But I think it's not surprising that elected leaders, when they can, are tempted to fiddle with the institutions and the rules in ways that will make it more likely that they're going to be able to keep winning elections. Those political machines were hard to get rid of. Uh, I'm assuming you're saying the same thing is happening in Europe, even if people would like to see a change. But you say that one of your goals in this book is, quote, to document the gulf between the alarming portrait of democracy in crisis and the more prosaic reality of contemporary European public opinion. So is this recent sense of dissatisfaction an invention of journalists and policy analysts? 
Well, I wouldn't say it's an invention, but I would say, first of all, that it's exaggerated the level of political trust that we've seen in Europe, for example, um, is lower than it has been at some other times. But um, I think by historic standards is probably not uh, something that's really unusual. But maybe more importantly, the myth that I want to dispel is the idea that that dissatisfaction is the most important moving part in what we see going on in the electoral process and in terms of elite politics. I think the real action here is almost always going on at the level of elites, but there's a kind of um, normative attachment that all of us have as democratic citizens to the notion that somehow the moving force in democratic politics has to be the sentiments or the opinions of ordinary citizens. I think that's mostly just not true. You mentioned earlier that neither Hungary's Fidesz party nor Poland's Law and Justice Party came to power as populist or authoritarian parties, but they've remade themselves that way and that their leaders decided that they would exploit the opportunities that they had to entrench themselves in power. So is it going to be hard to get them out of power? Well, it has been hard to get them out of power. They've been challenged to varying degrees in subsequent elections. I think in both places for the first couple of elections after they took power, uh, they entrenched themselves both institutionally and uh, by turning to some of the right-wing populist rhetoric that had been successful in other places. So, for example, Orban uh, started actively scapegoating immigrants and scapegoating the European Union with some success. Uh, but as I said, another important ingredient in their ability to maintain power was the fact that they managed to create societies and systems in which ordinary people felt like their day-to-day -day needs were being well satisfied. I think that's an important part of it as well. Will they manage to stay in power forever? No. At some point, the opposition will coalesce sufficiently and there will be sufficient unhappiness with the state of the country and society to get them booted out. But um, the success that they've had in entrenching themselves makes that harder and means that it'll happen uh, less soon than it otherwise might. Did Georgia Maloney um, campaign on similar uh, grounds to Orban? Well, no, her, her campaign or is was it, or more... This is kind of reminiscence of, of Mussolini. Um. <laughs> uh, she did campaign in terms of traditional Italian identity and trying to go back to the good old days, as all these populists uh, often do. Um, but I would say her campaign was a more full-throated right-wing populist platform, in part because of the difference in the party system. Her aim was not to try to win 53% of the vote as Orban had to in Hungary, uh, but rather to build a sufficiently intense, substantial minority that would propel her to having sufficient parliamentary support that she could then build a governing coalition. You're listening to Let It Lopit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Enjoying my conversation with Larry Bartels. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, the one we're discussing, Democracy Arose from the Top, Leaders, Citizens, and the Challenge of Populism in Europe. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212 209 2950. That's give and the number 2. 
WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. Do it during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, and we thank you very much. In return to Larry M. Bartels, again, the book, Democracy Arose from the Top, Leaders, Citizens, and the Challenge of Populism in Europe from Princeton University Press. He's the author of a number of books and holds the May Worth and Shane Chair of Public Policy and Social Science at Vanderbilt University. Now, um, you looked at 16 different examples of right-wing populist parties. Are they all fairly similar? Well, I would say they all share a family resemblance, uh, the Are they reminiscent in any way to uh, what happened before World War II, or do, do they try to totally disassociate themselves from that? Well, I think most of them are pretty different in the bases of their support. Um, Maloney in Italy is probably the closest thing to a throwback, and even she has uh, greatly downplayed the kind of sentimental attachment to fascism that um, seemed more prominent earlier in her career. Um, the most important attitude uh, that contributes to support for these parties overall, aside from simply right-wing conservative sympathies in general, the kind of traditional sort, um, is opposition to immigration, which in most of these places was not a major issue during the fascist period. Um, but one of the things that I found striking is that there's really been um, not an increase in anti-immigrant sentiment overall in Europe, but uh, an increase in support for immigration and uh, warmer feelings toward immigrants than had existed at the beginning of the 21st century. And that's largely driven by the views of young people and more affluent and better educated people in all these societies, even ones that have relatively low levels of support for immigration. Um, the people who are most sympathetic to immigrants are the younger people. And that suggests to me that the shift that we've observed, kind of waning of anti-immigrant sentiment is likely to continue in the future. There was in many parts of Europe, a big refugee crisis in 2015 and 2016, an inflow of refugees from Iraq and Syria, uh, especially. Mm. And that created social frictions and the instances in which anti-immigrant extremists mobilized opposition to immigration, got a lot of press attention, but overall had remarkably little impact on Europeans' attitudes toward immigration. So in most of these countries, it's still the case that attitudes toward immigrants are moderate or even uh, supportive. And so I think that will make it harder for these right-wing populist parties to find new broad bases of support in most of Europe going forward. Well, you've looked at European social survey data. Uh, as uh, you said, there are um, many European countries, uh, there are people who have uh, sentiments against immigration policies, but also are anti-globalization. And hasn't there been a growth of racial and religious intolerance in some parts of Europe? Well, there has been, and that's another one of the factors that can contribute to right-wing populist support. Uh, it depends a lot on what's going on in particular countries and how the leaders frame their appeals. But across Europe as a whole, I don't see a lot of um, overall increase in the kinds of attitudes that would make it more likely that people would turn to these extremist well, isn't it behind the decision, uh, the British Brexit decision, because people were upset that uh, all of these foreigners were coming into England to work? I think that was some piece of what was going on. I think maybe more important was just the 
sense that Britain didn't want to feel like it was just a kind of minor partner in Europe, but to be, you know, uh, harking back to the glorious past of the British Empire. But again, I think what's important in thinking about what happened there is that the concerns about the European Union or dissatisfaction with the European Union in Britain before Brexit um, would have been manageable if not for blunders by the mainstream politicians. Uh, the head of the Conservative Party basically blundered into offering people a referendum on the European Union, thinking that he would be able to first win the referendum and secondly kind of puncture the balloon of the UKIP party, which was the main uh, anti-EU party in Britain. And now um, Boris Johnson is totally expelled from politics. Yeah, well, Johnson was... this. Johnson was the mayor at that point, but uh, John Majors, who was oh. the, the prime minister, um, excuse me, uh, David Cameron, uh, was the, the prime minister who blundered into the referendum. But then even after the referendum, I think the conservative party exaggerated the appeal of Brexit and unnecessarily adopted a lot of the anti-immigrant rhetoric and in some cases anti-immigrant policies that UKIP had been peddling, even at a point where public opinion was already turning against UKIP. Uh, once Brexit happened, um, I think the Conservative Party could have stuck to its guns and uh, basically turned away from the kind of anti-immigrant appeal that they continued to pursue for some time afterward. That's, a, in my view at least, a kind of example of how mainstream politicians sometimes panic and mismanage the challenge uh, of populism. You say that some of these right-wing populist views around Europe and negative attitudes about immigration are strongly correlated with age, that the people who are most anti-immigrant tend to be older and are gradually aging out of the electorate. Do younger people have generally more favorable or relaxed attitudes towards immigration? Yes, uh, almost everywhere, even in the places where overall attitudes are negative. The least negative tend to be younger and better educated people. But didn't Angela Merkel's policies hurt her politically? Donald Trump called them a catastrophic mistake. Well, they were viewed as heroic by a lot of observers, uh, and the expectation was that she might very well get voted out of office as a result. She didn't. Her party suffered some at the polls, but uh, she managed to put together another coalition government and stay in power in spite of the unpopularity of those policies. But um, more surprisingly to me, if you look at the survey data from Germany throughout this period, there's really no change at all in overall attitudes about immigrants and immigration, despite you know the terrorist attacks and the criticisms of her policies. Ordinary Germans have were before and have remained pretty favorable toward immigration. There's a similar kind of story in Sweden, which has the most favorable attitudes anywhere in Europe toward immigrants, had a huge influx of immigrants during the refugee crisis, and there was a lot of talk about increasing anti-immigrant sentiment and the social frictions that were caused by trying to integrate these new arrivals into Swedish society. Um, there was a short downturn in attitudes toward immigration, but then an almost complete rebound. And Sweden remains um, the most favorable or among the most favorable countries in Europe toward immigration. My guest on today's London Low Pit at Large is Larry M. Bartels. His latest book, Democracy Erodes from the Top, Leaders, Citizens, and the Challenges of Populism in Europe from Princeton University Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. You cover in this book most of the years 2002 to 2019. Has there been uh, much of a change in the four years since? 
Well, I think the pandemic and the crises associated with the pandemic have had a significant effect. That effect has varied some by countries. I don't have a good sense of it systematically because one of the effects of the pandemic was to suspend these large-scale opinion surveys that I've been relying on. Uh, but there are some survey data that I think are interesting, focusing especially on attitudes toward the European Union. Mm. Um, after the euro crisis, the economic downturn you that mean began the global in 2000. Crisis? Right, uh, began in 2008 and 2009. Yeah, there was a lot with of. Rather squiffly and in a unified response in this country, but not in Europe. Right. There was uh, a great deal of effort to coordinate policies, and that was hampered by the institutional limitations of the European Union. And there was a decline in support for the EU in that period. One thing that people lose track of is that even in spite of that decline, most people in Europe were more enthusiastic about the European Union than they were about their own national government's handling of the crisis. Um, and insofar as they were dissatisfied with the European Union, for many of them, what they wanted was a stronger European Union rather than a weaker one or to pull out of it because they thought that the kinds of problems of coordinating economic policies uh, could be better overcome at the European level. And in the pandemic, I think we saw something similar. There was a kind of difficult, uh, improvised response to address the crisis by funneling EU funds to the hardest hit countries. Um, there was a significant change in the institutions, a kind of ratcheting upward of the potential for unified European action in that they, for the first time, issued bonds that were guaranteed by Europe as a whole rather than by individual countries in order to support this uh, transferring of funds to the hardest hit places. Somebody referred to that as the EU's Hamilton moment. I think that's an exaggeration, but I think it's a example of how um, every time a crisis comes up in Europe, the EU struggles to deal with it. But in the course of doing that, uh, they develop additional institutions and capacity that then ratchets up the extent to which a unified Europe can then deal with the next crisis. Well, wasn't the EU especially ineffective in places where the euro crisis hit hardest, like Greece and Spain? Well, I think there were certainly policy failures in those places. Um, some of that had to do with the specific decisions by the EU, especially their hesitancy uh, in light of German opposition to unified action to bail out those countries. Um, as you said, the reaction in the US was faster and more aggressive, and I think on the whole, more successful. Uh, but what we didn't see in Europe was what many people feared, a kind of slump into another depression of the kind that they suffered in the 1930s. Uh, Greece was especially hard hit um, and really still hasn't entirely recovered. Uh, but in most of Europe, the crisis was, I think, surprisingly short-lived. And the response in general was, I think, better than uh, a lot of people expected it to be. On a broader level, you write that, quote, the deeper issue here is that the focus on public opinion as a barometer of democratic functioning is itself fundamentally misguided. Why? Well, as I said, I think we want to believe that what happens in democratic systems has somehow to reflect the underlying opinions and sentiments of citizens. And that's mostly just not the case. I think um, we have trouble recognizing the extent to which political leadership is fundamental in how the politics of these different countries go and how successful they are in a 
previous book that I wrote with my colleague Chris Aiken called Democracy for Realists. We referred to this as the folk theory of democracy, the kind of uh, Abraham Lincoln notion that democracy is government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Um, that's simply impractical. Government is run by officials. In democracies, they're elected officials, which has some important consequences. Uh, but for the most part, they're still the ones calling the shots. Do you say that there's a distinction to be made between conservative ideology and conservative worldviews? Um, yes. What I do in the analysis of the survey data is to distinguish between two sets of measures, um, one of which is just a kind of traditional left-right scale of the kind that's familiar in the U.S. Usually we use the terms liberal and conservative, and a fair number, although not all citizens, think at least to some extent in terms of these ideological labels and think of themselves as conservatives or liberals to a greater or lesser extent. In Europe, um, they use a left-right scale, and people often will think of themselves as being on the left or on the right. And those positions are correlated to a, a greater or lesser degree with their attitudes on various specific policies, economic policies, the role of government, and so on. Um, I distinguish that kind of political view from what I call conservative worldviews, which are really more about people's personalities and values. And that's often tapped, as it in the, is in these European social surveys, with questions about what kinds of people uh, the respondent would prefer to interact with, or in some cases, the questions are questions about, you know, what's more important for raising your child? And it's stuff like, you know, respecting tradition or being adventurous, uh, being secure or having uh, new experiences, interacting with lots of different kinds of people or feeling at home in a particular community. So these are attitudes that are not explicitly political, although in some contexts, they have strong political overtones, but they're really more about people's basic values and maybe their personalities. We've been talking about the United States as a, uh, an, an entity in itself, but can't we also see it as a collection of 50 small countries? Um, are there parallels to what's happening in Europe throughout this country? Well, there are some in that state politics have increasingly polarized along the same lines as national politics in the U.S. And so there are lots of red and blue states in which uh, leaders have adopted increasingly um, extreme left and right policies, uh, but also in some cases have engaged in what I would say is mostly fairly minor instances of democratic backsliding, trying to limit access to the polling place and so on. I think those are in many ways analogous to the kinds of efforts that we've seen in some other places to try to entrench themselves in power. And again, it's, I think, partly an expression of political values and partly just a kind of hard-headed political calculation, uh, in some cases probably right, in other cases probably wrong, uh, about what kinds of institutional changes are going to benefit a particular party or a particular set of political leaders. We have just about a minute and a half, two minutes more. Anything you want to add before we end this? Well, I think that thinking about, uh, you know, the erosion of democracy as I have a lot in recent years and a lot of scholars of American politics have in ways that they hadn't until probably 2016. Um, one thing that struck me is how complicated and multidimensional democracy is. So we talk about democratic backsliding and can point to particular kinds of institutional changes or changes in procedures uh, that do constitute backsliding. But thinking about democracy in a broad way and understanding 
what the quality of a given democratic system is at any given time is hugely complicated. I think we don't really have the conceptual tools to think about how we would trade off various kinds of improvements or decrements in the functioning of democratic systems and come to any overall understanding of how well or badly a particular system is functioning at any given time. But I think insofar as we can be clear-headed about what democracy really is and what the danger signs for democratic systems really are, we'll be in a better position to monitor the situation intelligently and to take action when that's necessary. Larry M. Bartels is University Distinguished Professor of Political Science and Law and May Worthen Shane, Chair of Public Policy and Social Science at Vanderbilt University. His books include Unequal Democracy, The Political Economy of the New Gilded Age, and with Christopher H. Aitchen, Democracy for Realists, Why Elections Do Not Produce Responsive Government. Um, his most recent, also from Princeton University Press, Democracy Erodes from the Top, Leader Citizens and the Challenge of Populism in Europe. And I thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you. Real pleasure. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate, L-O-P-A-T-E, Leonard Lopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep this show coming to you uh, on a, a regular basis, weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., and, and the station to, to stay alive because we are going through a really serious economic crisis. So we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and the number 2 WBAI.org. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content, information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Democracy Arose from the Top, Leaders, Citizens, and the Challenge of Populism in Europe by Larry M. Bartels. So why not make that call right now to 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for $10, $15, $25, however many dollars a month you feel comfortable giving, as long as you feel like giving it. And we will, it allows us to, to plan for the future, and we'll say thank you with a WBAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, and that allows us to be completely free speech radio. Um, and remember that we are this uh, historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that is 100% listener-sponsored. Uh, and we hope you'll uh, keep us alive and thriving with the tax-deductible support. Uh, we're off tomorrow. While more work is being done on the transmitter towers, another problem that we face and an expensive one. But I hope you can join us again on Wednesday when we'll be talking about forest fires. 